you come into the room, they see you have a, has a, have a long beard. It's like, hey, this dude could be a philosopher. He's got a beard. The guy who's coercing him is trying to force him to strip that off. Deny that you're a philosopher by getting rid of this badge. He says, to heck with that. You want to behead me? If that's up to you, if it pleases you, go ahead and try. If it'll do you any good. So basically, I love this, this passage from Epictetus. He's saying, you can't coerce me, dude. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. My name is Caleb Monteveros. And today I am speaking with repeat guest, Dr. William O. Stevens, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Creighton University, and most recently author of Epictetus's Enchiridion, a new translation and guide to Stoic ethics. Do check out our, some of our past episodes. Episode 26 is all about Epictetus's handbook. Today we're going to be focusing largely on Musonius Rufus. Well, thanks for coming back. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's start with uh, this connection tying Musonius Rufus to uh, Epictetus. How did Musonius Rufus influence Epictetus? Yeah, so Epictetus uh, attended lectures from several different uh, Roman teachers of his day. Um, but Musonius was the one who was, depending on one's interpretation of him, either the only Stoic teacher Epictetus directly interacted with or the most Stoic leaning of Epictetus's teachers. Scholars disagree a little bit about whether we should consider Musonius Rufus um, to be a, a sort of full-blooded Stoic or whether he had Stoic sympathies, but was also influenced by Plato's thought and certainly the cynics. You definitely see a cynic stamp in Musonius's or on Musonius's version of Stoicism. And so I, I myself am inclined to consider both Musonius Rufus and Epictetus to be Stoics. But regarding influence, yeah, you see a strong influence of Musonius on Epictetus. It's a little harder because we have a lot more texts from Epictetus with the mm -hmm. four surviving books of the discourses of the original eight, apparently. Um, and we have the handbook, which is really not a very clear, in many respects, and not a very clear window into Epictetus's philosophy. The discourses is much more complete, so you get a much more well-rounded view of Epictetus's philosophy in the classroom's teachings than in the handbook, which is not to say that the handbook isn't useful, but the discourses give you a lot more text to work with. In Musonius's case, we have fewer texts. Mm -hmm. We have these discourses, these fragments of his. Um, and if you look for parallels or influences from Musonius's thinner body of writings, you do see things like examples that are shared or echoed in Epictetus. Like, for example, um, the, the, uh, the fighting cock, the rooster, and using the rooster as an example of a male bird that is rightly proud of its comb on its head. And that is an indication that nature is equipped roosters 
with combs so that they keep them because it announces that that's a male bird, not not a hen, but a rooster. Um, and both Epictetus and Musonius cite that as an example of why human males who are adults ought not to cut their hair short. So that's one kind of example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, the the great respect that both have for the cynics, for Diogenes, that's clear in, in both Musonius and Epictetus. Musonius is a little more forward thinking when it comes to equal education for women. You do not see that in Epictetus. He does not echo Musonius's forward-thinking views about equal education and, and having an equal virtues that the women have that women have the same virtues that men do. Tony is not quite consistent on their social roles as a consequence of that. So he's not perfectly consistent on egalitarianism between the sexes, but he is forward-thinking in a way that Epictetus is not. Epictetus has several rather pejorative texts uh, when he talks about women. Um, yeah, yeah. So those are some of the influences that Musonius has on Epictetus. Yeah, the the fact that they sh- share the admiration of the cynics is very interesting. And at least Epictetus seems to take the cynic almost as the paradigmatic sage, or at least one of the paradigmatic sages. He says, right, it's not the fact that not everyone should be a cynic, but nonetheless, a cynic is in a sense still the ideal, right? Exactly. And and that's exactly why um, I I think it's very safe to regard Epictetus as a full-blooded Stoic because he does not urge his students to follow Diogenes. He says that's a very, very special calling and almost nobody has what it takes because in Epictetus's day, there were plenty of cynics running around, but none of them pulled it off. And Musonius also seems to have that complaint about cynics of his day, that they just didn't pull it off. They didn't really walk the talk. Both of them say, hey, anybody can grow their hair long and can grow a long straggly beard. That doesn't make you virtuous. That doesn't make you wise. That doesn't make you a good philosopher in dealing with arguments Um, and challenges coming from the skeptics that you need to be able to respond to as a Stoic philosopher. And so, yeah, Diogenes is a hero for Epictetus, but he's a very special asterisk kind of hero, whereas Epictetus's biggest hero is clearly Socrates Mm -hmm. in Epictetus's discourses. Because Socrates was what? Well, he wasn't a cynic. Well, it wasn't just because Diogenes came after Socrates. It was because... Socrates, like Stoics following him, was married, had children, participated in the government of Athens. And so he fulfilled his civic and familial duties and his uh, husbandly duties. And of course, Diogenes and the Cynics following him, they did not marry. And with the exception of Crates, well, with the exception of Crates, Crates allow Hipparchia to convince him that he should marry. But that was unusual, very unusual that a male cynic would get married. And they did not have children, so far as I know, given the historical record. But Diogenes was certainly a freewheeling bachelor, masturbating in public and that sort of thing. So um, that's not the sort of thing that Epictetus and Musonius go for. 
Musonius is really very conservative. He's almost, you can almost think of him as a proto-Catholic because he advocated um, having a really big family, lots and lots of kids. The more, the better, the more, the merrier. And he thought just seeing a, a husband and wife with a long trail of lots of kids walking, walking into the market was a beautiful, joyous thing. So Musonius explicitly argues against homosexuality. He, he argues that's contrary to nature. Men should be having, men should be married. They should have lots of kids with their wives. And, and he promotes big families and he's, he's homophobic. Um, whereas Epictetus doesn't speak to that. He, he doesn't seem to have the kind of philosophical objection to homosexual sex acts that his teacher Musonius did. It's also not as sensitive when it comes to diet as Musonius is. Diet, Musonius is more conservative in that respect too. Right, right. There's a, a former Stoa guest, Kevin Vost, who was a practicing Catholic, loved Musonius Rufus, in part because you know you do see the fact that he's got this pronatalist philosopher he believes in traditional Roman values, but nonetheless, they're slightly more liberal than I think what the typical Roman would practice. So they're somewhat more amenable. But he thought that Musonius Rufus went, went quite well and indeed helped explain some traditional Catholic views. Um, but at any rate, one thing that I think makes Musonius Rufus so interesting is that he tackles some of these really specific issues, like how should one eat? Should you have a beard? How should you furnish your house? Right. Yeah. Um, but before we jump into what he says about those, like why should a, care, a Stoic care at all about issues like diet, uh, the length of a beard? Shouldn't they just be focused on virtue? Yeah, well, why do we focus on virtue? Because the Stoic definition of the goal, the telos of all living things, including human beings, is to live in agreement with nature. That comes first. That's, that's the target that we all aim for. And then the Stoics say, okay, well, nature is polyvalent. They're, they're, it, they're, it's, it's ambiguous. It has multiple meanings. There's nature with a capital N, which is the whole cosmos, the universe. So living in agreement with nature with a capital N means not trying to fight gravity. Um, that's not possible for any, any, anything that's a body, any embodied thing. But it also means more specifically living in agreement with the particular kind of constitution characteristic of members of your species. And human beings are mammals. And so we need to eat and drink and sleep. And it's appropriate for us, or it can be appropriate for us to procreate given the right circumstances um, to keep ourselves from getting too cold, too warm, like all mammals do. But then you've got a third layer or level of nature, which is one's own particular nature. So you have to live in agreement with your nature as a mammal when you're a human being, but you also have to live in agreement with your nature as a primate. And all primates are social creatures. The, Sto the Stoics didn't, the ancient Stoics didn't, were not primatologists. So they didn't know that 
non-human primates, chimpanzees and gorillas can learn and have learned American Sign Language, and that they have a kind of rudimentary kind of reciprocity that's the origin of morality, uh, as uh, Franz de Waal argues. Um, but they focused on us as special because of our reason, right? Our logos. And your logos tells you that um, you, as an individual human being, share a lot in common with other human beings, a great deal, but you also have your own distinctive set of strengths and weaknesses. And so not every profession is going to be appropriate for you. Not every job or task is going to be particularly suited to you rather than some other human being who might be bigger or faster or smaller or quicker, more dexterous with their hands um, or younger. Um, so, uh, so recognizing your own particular individual strengths and weaknesses is part of living in agreement with your own particular nature as an individual. Um, and so what is virtue? Virtue is the perfection of reason. So that's how we get to virtue, right? Your human mm -hmm. nature is what makes you special is that you can imitate the divine. You can imitate the gods who are perfectly rational and they're not embodied the way we are but that's what we have in common with the gods. And so living in agreement with your human reason means living in agreement with the will of the gods or providence. And so you get back to the first layer again of, of uh, living in agreement with the universe and things that happen. Where does, where will you start thinking about the food? Where does that enter yeah, the picture? Again so, okay. So you have to eat, right? As a mammal, you have to eat, not just as a human being. And so what you eat and how much you eat and how quickly you eat, and whether you're eating by yourself or with other people, all of these things are ethically charged. And so, and the Stoics recognize this going way back, way back to Socrates and the early Greeks. Eating is a social activity, but it's necessary for survival. And certain customs of eating involving etiquette are very prominent in our cultural uh, ways of life, food ways, as they're called. So, you know, you are what you eat, but you're more than that because you're also how you eat and where you eat. I mean, one thing to remember is that for the ancient Greeks, they did not picnic. This is a, this is a 20th century and 21st century Western kind of thing to do because you can get dirt in your food. The wind can blow leaves into your plate of food. And if you're sitting on the ground and eating, then of course insects can get in your food. And so it, on the basis of hygiene alone, eating outside the ancient Greeks thought was something you only do when you're forced to, if you're a soldier campaigning and you can't pitch a tent and you're, and you're on the march, then you can nibble on some bread. Um, but that's not your, your preference. Your preference would be to set up a camp, set up a tent and cook your food and keep it clean and eat it indoors. And this is why Diogenes the Cynic, who would eat outdoors, was scandalous to the Athenians because you don't eat outside. That's what dogs do. 
dogs eat outside. And so Diogenes, of course, is like, yeah, it's okay. If eating, if eating is natural, it's natural anywhere, anytime. That's mm-hmm. his reasoning. And that distinguished him very much from the Stoics and from uh, the, the early Athenian philosophers, the Greek philosophers. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, food comes from nature. Food comes from the ground. We grow crops. We have orchards. The Greeks and the Romans, you know, food production was very important because they faced food insecurity much more often than the privileged us do, right, in the 21st century. Um, We still, there are Americans that face food insecurity, and of course, plenty of people outside the United States that wrestle with food insecurity. But this was an issue in the ancient world, and it was very much a matter of wealth, of course. Um, But they, they, you know, had to deal with famines and that sort of thing, too, and food could spoil, and they did not have refrigeration as we do. So food mattered, and it mattered ethically, and it mattered for living in agreement with nature. So living in agreement with nature means eating in agreement with nature. How do you eat in agreement with nature? Well, Musonius has very decided opinions on that, right? Right, right. So as a very austere, leaning, austere uh, side of the spectrum, stoic, conservative kind of stoic, his view was that food is fuel. And the purpose of food is to energize you. And one of his arguments for this is if you think about how long it takes to eat a meal and digest it and then get the energy from that food, from those calories, you realize that it's only a few seconds or maybe a minute if you really chew your food a lot and the saliva mixes on your tongue. And so you're tasting it for a few seconds and then you swallow it. And then that food is in you for hours and hours and hours. And you don't taste it when it's going down your esophagus. And you don't taste it when it's in your stomach. And you don't taste it as as it's going through your large intestine and your small intestine, right? And so for him, the notion of hedonism is, is just wrong, right? As a Stoic, you live in agreement with nature. That's what guides your choices, your power of reason not what titillates your palate, not what feels good. If you ate and drank just because it, you know, if you thought the purpose of food and drink was to make you feel good, you'd get drunk a lot. You'd drink, I would drink milkshakes all day long, right? I mean, that's not gonna give you a healthy diet and people who do overeat and drink too much wine and drink milkshakes when instead they should be having healthier food, their bodies pay the price. And so it's a clever argument, I think, that Musonius has. It says, look, you know, any food that has calories is going to fuel your actions. And when you're not eating, your actions should be as directed toward virtue as when you are eating. So what's the virtuous way to eat? Not too fast. Not too much. Not at the wrong time not when there are more important things to be doing, right? If you have Mm -hmm. tasks to do that are urgent, you don't say, "Uh oh, I'll put that on hold. I've got to start making my elaborate dinner. Not spending too much time fussing over food, its preparation, its presentation. Musonius doesn't go for any of that. 
And these are the considerations, his, his suspicion, his rejection of luxury. And remember, the Rome that he's in, there are plenty of very luxurious, wealthy people who hire expensive cooks and chefs who spend hours preparing all sorts of fancy food and who pay top dollar to have food imported from foreign lands, exotic birds and and bears and camels and all sorts of animals that live far, far away from where Rome was, these would be imported. And it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort. And Musonis thinks that's just all ridiculous. It's a waste of money. And, it, and most importantly, it's a failure to understand what the purpose of food is. The purpose of food is fuel. So you eat what's abundant, nearby, easy to get, and cheap. And for him, that meant plants. Yeah, largely plants. Largely plants. And, you know, if you have a little cheese with that, okay. If you have a little milk with that, again, given the circumstances, if you can get milk and it's cheap and it's available, a little milk is fine. A little cheese, if it's available and cheap and nearby, is fine. Honeycombs, if you can find them, great. A little bit of honey but mostly veggies and you can eat most of them raw. And he thought it was okay to cook them a little bit and okay to cook grain. Uh, the Romans um, ate this, uh, this kind of porridge. It's basically just cooked grain. So it's basically like gruel or porridge. And they would add some vegetables and seasonings to it and that sort of thing. You could even add an egg to it. And if it was high grit, if it was really fancy, it would be from semolina, from wheat, but they also would make it from barley and that sort of thing. Nice. Um, baking bread was kind of a big deal. That was a little bit more elevated, but it was considered highly civilized to eat baked bread. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So those were the kinds of foods that Musonius advocated. And he argued against meat because you got to go hunt the animals. And if they're domestic, you got to butcher them and they take longer to cook. And when you're cooking them, there are people who love the smell of roasting meat and they get all barbecue, yummy, yummy. And and Musonius is saying you're letting your your nose lead your brain. Right. Your nose is telling you, oh, I don't want to eat this roast beef or whatever it is. Right. Or suckling pig. They would eat, Romans would eat pig uteruses. They loved pig. There was a special delicacy and brains and all sorts of crazy stuff like that. Crazy to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Musonius was like, that stuff, it's not easy to get. It takes a long time to prepare. It's very expensive. And if you're eating it because it tastes good, you got it backwards. You eat when you're hungry to get fuel so you can get back to work. Mm-hmm. So to what extent would, or how would, how do you think Musonius Rufus's view compares with the view of some people who take an optimization type strategy towards food? So whether they're athletes or professionals, they think about, you know, I want to eat whatever is best for me to perform my job. I don't care how much it, I don't care what it tastes, uh, I pro- they probably care less about how easy it is to access, but it's ultimately it's serving some instrumental purpose, which is to fulfill, you know, probably the most obvious cases would be 
like professional performance or athletic performance? Yeah. Um, Misonius rejects being finicky about food. He's very, very practical, you know, practicality and, and, and rejecting luxury um, are what he argues for. And in defending his argument for a, a very simple vegetarian diet, because of course vegetarian diets can be very fancy. I mean, you could optimize with all sorts of, um, you know, precise measurements of how much you have of each different food group to get your micronutrients so, I mean, vegetarians could spend, you know, you can spend a lot of money live, living as a vegan. Um, but Musonius is far more rustic than that. And that's why he, and, and he admires farmers. And he says, look, if you're a farmer and you're, you're eating what the land produces, not what comes off the hoof, not, not chicken breasts or thighs, not, not pork or beef or goat or, or mutton, lamb, whatever, but crops that come right off, right out of the field, you are going to be sturdier. You're exercising outside. You're going to have better digestion. You're not going to overdo it. You're, you're going to be able to work longer and harder. You're going to be less vulnerable to getting colds and diseases with that kind of healthy, high fiber diet, as we would describe it. So optimization for athletes, I mean, yeah, I mean, here I, I, I'm thinking of porphyry because porphyry, I don't want to digress too long because we're talking about the Stoics, but sure, sure. porphyry argues that if you're a soldier, and of course he's, you know, he's a follower of Plotinus, so he's a Neoplatonist. But he mm -hmm. argues that if you're a soldier, you have certain bodily needs that a philosopher who's a contemplative will not have. So um, Porphyry argues that soldiers need not give up meat. And if you're an athlete and you're a, a wrestler, for example, and you're really bulking up your muscles, back then it was considered, you know, the ancients thought it, it very common or appropriate for large athletes who are building muscle to eat a, a big a big portion of their diet as, as meat. Um, but what Porphyry argues is, if you want to be a philosopher, you're not a soldier, you're not an athlete of the body. You're training to be an athlete of the soul, and to be an athlete of the soul, you should separate yourself from physical pleasures, the body, and that sort of thing. So this is where he and Musonius would agree: food is not for pleasure. They both reject hedonism. So if the optimization is to fine tune your physicality and make your body, you know, work at peak performance, I think Musonius would say, again, this is not what farmers mess with. So his kind of model eater is going to be a vegetarian farmer. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose you also have um, Epictetus shaming his students when they're thinking about taking on particular roles. And he says, look, if, you, if you're thinking about becoming an athlete, that means you're going to need this training regimen and this diet. He does especially mention diet. So probably yeah. if we can infer a little bit 
Musonius Rufus, as we view, would accept that whatever roles you have is going to determine how you should eat. Uh, But he'd still probably nonetheless, I imagine, be wary of some ways in which you have this optimization culture around food and maximizing for, you know, trying to basically just push up all these different numbers uh, for the sake of... And which profession you choose is going to be ethically charged for both Epictetus and Musonius. So again, Musonius very explicitly admires farmers. And he says that when you're out working the fields, you can philosophize very easily because you're paying attention with your eyes and your hands and your back, but your mind is free to philosophize about what living in agreement with nature means for a farmer and for a citizen and for a husband and a father and an uncle and, you know, a brother and all the rest. He doesn't think that hunting is necessary for feeding yourself, except in incredibly extraordinary circumstances. Um, That's really not a profession that he would recommend for a philosopher, for someone who wants to live as a stoic because you, you need to learn different kinds of skills. And are you, are you, hunting these animals to sell them to other people. I mean, he, that's just not the kind of profession that he admires. He doesn't express admiration for hunters. Musonius doesn't express admiration for athletes either, as I recall, in the way that Epictetus respects their dedication, mm-hmm. right? So for both of them, this notion of oskesis and training, um, it, 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 it needs to be training toward being a better philosopher, being a, a good person. And that means cultivating the virtues. And philosophers take that, that is Stoic philosophers, take cultivating the virtues as the most important thing. Right, right. So I think a lot of how Musonius Rufus thinks about how he should eat depends on how he sees the function of food. And have you said it's food as fuel, food as nutrition. Um, but doesn't that leave out the social role that food plays in so many of our lives? You know, we're also social creatures. And if you think about at at the larger scale, we have traditions around food in our own lives. You know, you go to some family member's house, they make you something, you make them something. And there's something that's, I think that's plausibly lost in Musonius's more restrictive account of food. How do you, how do you think he would respond to that or think through those kinds of issues? I think that's, I think that's a fair assessment. He, 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 I think it's a good question and it's a fair assessment because in the two, in uh, discourse 18A and B, the two in which he discusses food, he, he doesn't discuss the social dimension of eating. Epictetus does a much better job of that. So Epictetus uses examples. He, he discusses examples of being invited to a banquet Mm-hmm. and how you need to be polite and wait for the platter to come around to you. And then you can take some food, not too much, not too greedily, right? You, you, a certain decorum is appropriate in that sort of social setting. And it is incumbent upon you to fulfill that social role as a diner, as a dinner guest. Um, so Epictetus is more sensitive to that and discusses that explicitly in the discourses um, but you're, you're right, Caleb. I mean, uh, what we have from Musonius, again, we don't have as many texts, but in what, from what we do have in 18 A and B, he, he really doesn't speak to that. And so we can speculate a little bit about that, I think. Um, 
if I'm cautious about it, I suppose. Um, Epictetus, of course, was born into slavery and was probably beaten and abused by one master or several. Maybe he became lame because um, one of his masters twisted and broke his leg, or maybe he developed lameness from rheumatism. We have two different reports on that. But in any case, Epictetus had a very, very humble origin, right? His origin story is, is quite different than Seneca and different than Musonius Rufus, who was not born into slavery and not later manumitted and then, you know, became, uh, founded his own school. Musonius was a member of the equestrian class. So he was a Roman knight, as they, they call it. But to be a, rem- a member of the equestrian class was second highest to the, the senators. So he was not a patrician, but he was next, next down. And so he was, you know, he, he was a nobleman. And so he, so he would have been, he would have had much more experience throughout his whole life at banquets. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we could imagine that he took for granted the social dimension of eating. But what we have in terms of the texts suggests that his emphasis in teaching his students was not, oh, well, you know, you don't want to be a sloppy eater and violate etiquette. That's not the most important message he's imparting to his students. The most important message he's imparting is, don't become a glutton like these other wealthy equestrians that I see all the time who spend tons of money on these elaborate banquets importing rare game meat from foreign lands and scouring the ocean for all this fancy seafood, right? And the Romans loved their seafood and they loved to eat as a delicacy dormice, right? These tiny chubby little mice that they would prepare in special ways. For Epictetus, I'm sorry, for Musonius Rufus, pressing, pushing against the hedonism endemic in Roman higher society was his emphasis. Mm-hmm. And so I think he wouldn't disagree with what Epictetus says about following etiquette and maintaining social relations among family members and, and fellow citizens and that sort of thing. But for, for Musonius, the emphasis is very much remembering food is not to make you feel good. Food is not for pleasure. It's fuel. And you should, you, you, you should eat to live. You should not live to eat. And those were the, that habit, that Con, living contrary to nature, eating contrary to nature from Musonius uh, was primarily resisting this hedonistic understanding of food. Yeah, I suppose maybe he made a philosophical oversight, maybe not. It's hard to say we don't have all of his texts, but another reading is the one that you, you just mentioned that it's a matter of emphasis. You know, who's Musonius Rufus living with? Who is he teaching? They're going to be roman equestrians or if not equestrians people who have become shown their talents become manumitted and are sort of entering into those higher rungs 
of Roman society. And perhaps that's when you want to be thinking about, and as he does in a number of domains, that temptation towards as whether that's realized as luxury, overrating the harm of exile, whatever have you, that's what's top of mind for him and probably what he thinks is most important for his peers and students. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So now we can maybe pivot into what he thought about beards and maybe we could step back a little bit, like give a little bit of background to this discussion. Why do so many ancient philosophers discuss whether one should have a beard or not? Well, I don't, I don't know that many of them exp- in the texts that we have, again, that are extant, uh, not many of them discuss having a beard and whether you should or not. Um, we do know that beards were extremely popular both in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome among philosophers. That, that's definitely the case. And the tradition mm-hmm. there goes back at least to Socrates, if not before, so that um, images that we have of pre-Socratic philosophers, um, they're all bearded. So what's up with that? Well, (laughs) a lot, actually. Um, So the practice of shaving, historians believe, really began with Alexander the Great. And so that was after Socrates, after Diogenes, in the Hellenistic period. And my understanding is that in ancient warfare, Alexander was an innovator as a great general. I mean, he he wasn't just Alexander of Macedon, right? What made him so great? Well, he conquered much of the known world at the time. And why was he so successful? Well, because he was a brilliant tactician. And he recognized that if you're battling against someone and you have a long beard and they're swinging their sword at you with their free hand, they can grab your beard and get you and stick you and run you through. So you you want to be, right? You don't want to have a long beard and long hair that they could grab onto, right? You want to be, you know, keep it close to your face. So the practice of shaving, uh, you know, was, was instigated or it, it was begun by, uh, in Alexander the Great's time, apparently. And in ancient Rome, um, again, they were they had long hair. Ancient Romans before what the second the, the the second third century BC, they followed their Greek predecessors in having long hair and long beards. So the ancient Romans, <laughs> ancient from Musonius's time, they had long hair and long beards. Mm-hmm. So in Rome, um, it was Scipio Aemilianus who in around 160 or so, I guess, when he was in his peak adulthood, um, he introduced to Rome the practice of shaving. And it caught on. And so from, you know, 160 to 150 BC and forward up into the, uh, uh, the, uh, up through the empire, um, but uh, even, you know, before that, uh, the norm, the cultural norm was to shave. Mm-hmm. And 
the Romans, in many ways, uh, once again, are following some, some Greek precedents. They started, you know, styling their hair in fancy ways, the wealthy did. And the same was true with, you know, the beards that were grown. So who was growing the beards? Well, only the minority of people after 160 BC in Rome were growing beards. Some people grew beards as an expression of being under duress. If they had a lawsuit against them, if they were convicted of a, of a, of a, of a crime and someone took them to court and they lost, um, if they were about to be dragged into court and be sued and litigated against by someone, they would grow a beard as an expression of, I'm kind of harried and under pressure. Um, if they got sick or they had some you know, issue with their skin on their face, and it would be irritated by shaving, then they would grow a beard. Uh, but most of the people, most of the time, were clean shaven, except for philosophers. Because the philosophical tradition of wearing a beard continued on from um, Socrates and his predecessors all the way down through the Hellenistic age. Now, why did philosophers wear beards? Well, this is where Musonius says, you know, there's a tradition of this. But before we talk about that, again, we have to talk about Musonius's kind of rustic understanding of nature. And this is something that he shares in common with Epictetus. You see the influence there. Epictetus, too, agrees. Shaving the beard is wrong for men. It's not just wrong for philosophers. It's contrary to nature for men. Why? Well, because facial hair grows naturally in adult men. This is what marks your passage from adolescence into manhood is you grow a beard. And the Romans had this practice of around the age of 20, when they first started wearing the toga virilis, the toga of manhood, some of them would shave their beard, their first beard around age 20, and then keep it. They would, they would have a religious uh, celebration so there was religious significance to your first shaving. Hmm. Um, and Nero was one guy who shaved when he was 20 and he, he had this very gaudy golden box that he kept his beard trimmings in. And uh, Augustus threw this huge party when he had his first beard trimmed. Um, he, he, he paid to have the citizens celebrate. So it had all this religious significance. Um, and then of course, the non-philosophers continued to shave their beards regularly. But Musonius argues that that's contrary to nature. It would be like the cock that I mentioned before, tearing off its own comb. Beards come naturally to a man's face. So you leave it alone. You let it grow, right? And the lion doesn't shave off its mane. And so it distinguishes the male of the human species from the female. Women don't have beards, men do. Boys don't have beards, men do. So if you shave your beard, Musonius argues, who are you trying to look like? Either a boy or a woman, right? Or even worse, someone who's trying to seduce, someone who's trying to be seduced by someone who likes right, right. hairless men boys or men girls, right? And so if you 
spend a lot of time quaffing your hair and getting styled hair and careful, you know, haircuts, grooming with, with a lot, again, a lot of time, a lot of effort on your appearance of the hair on your head, whether it's up here or down here. If you spend a lot of time doing that to make yourself look appealing to somebody else, you're acting as a prostitute. You're trying to please somebody else's conception of beauty. But look at the lion. Lions are magnificent, right? They're not going to be more beautiful if you shave their mane off. And so Musonius's notion of Stoic beauty is that what's beautiful is what's natural for men. And what's natural for men is this and letting this grow. So he, he, he did think that it was okay to trim your hair, to crop it but he likened it to a vine. If you have a vine and it's getting so long that it's falling off and it's becoming a problem, then you only trim off the excess and the hair should be the same way. The hair on your scalp should be the same way. You only trim off the excess. So I imagine that what he has in mind here is if your hair grows over your eyes and you can't see, then your vine is too long. You trim off the hair that's blocking your eyes. Or if it grows way down over your ears and gets tangled up in your ears and you have trouble hearing, then you cut it off your ears. That's what I imagine he's he's talking about there. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So I suppose part of it is he has this opposition to luxury, right? And the way people style their hair is just has so much to do with them valuing luxurious matters. But fundamentally, it seems like it's about his view of nature and what's natural um and i think there's this question with masonius rufus and you see it in epictetus as well where you have sort of this broad picture of live according to nature what does that mean at the top level it means you know living as uh in line with the logos living as a human animal as someone who is rational and has a social aspect to the rationality um, but then Musonius goes even more specific and says, you know, like there are particular uh, bodily things that are natural. How we think about our, our hair is just another, we should think about, well, what's the best thing to do with our hair? Think about what's natural. And you're not referring to these broader abstract notions of, you know, rational, being pro-social and so on, but a much more specific story, almost in a way you see in a number of other different religious traditions that ask questions about what you ought to do while you look at what's natural, because there's this assumption that there's a well-ordered world and you can read off that order from what you see in front of you. So I suppose, what can you say about how Stoics debated over that, debated over different conceptions of nature? Would people have pushed back on Musonius Rufus, his idea that, uh, you know, the fact that hair grows is one of the most, uh, it's on men, on older men is one of the most important thing that distinguishes them from other sexes. Uh, you know, just, just as today, you might have debates over whether a certain sexual orientation is natural or something of that sort, right? Yeah. Well, again, for him, it's of a piece with all the different kinds of hair that the human body sprouts out. But it's pretty clear that, given what he does say about trimming only the excess off, that the notion of shaving your chest, right, 
that that models and certain athletes do now um, in in America anyway <laughs> and elsewhere, Musonius would absolutely reject. Now, why would he reject that? Well, um, what about shaving off all the hair on your body everywhere, including your pubic hair, your eyebrows, and your eyelashes? That'd be a problem because eyelashes serve a natural purpose. Eyelashes and eyebrows keep dust and debris from falling into your eyes. Similarly, hair on your scalp protects your head. When it's cold, it keeps you warmer. When it's hot, it keeps you from getting sunburn, right? And pubic hair has its purpose too. When you're engaged in sexual activity, it protects, you know, it protects that tender part of the body. And so shaving off pubic hair or chest hair or back hair or eyebrows or eyelashes, none of it, none of it would be in accordance with nature. It has no practical value. Nature gives you those kinds of hairs for a reason. Nostril hair. Nostril hair filters out, again, dust and other things that can get in your nose. So if you, if you trim your nostril hair away or you cut it out or pull it out, it, then it's, it, your nose is more vulnerable to taking in foreign bodies. So nostril hair is worth keeping too. Now he doesn't talk about hair in the ear. As an old man, I can tell you that hair that grows inside the ears is, is kind of a nuisance. Musonius didn't talk about that. But you see his point about the other kinds of hair. You don't need mm -hmm. to trim your eyebrows. You shouldn't. You, you don't need to trim your eyelashes. You shouldn't. Your body hair, you shouldn't as a man. I, he, doesn't, he doesn't speak to women. So he doesn't talk about shaving armpits or legs or whatever. His students are men. And so that's who he's, he's speaking to. Uh, so that, that's kind of, you know, his conception of, of, that's his conception of providence, right? Nature, you wouldn't have it if nature didn't give it to you for a good reason, for a useful purpose. And the protective feature of hair is homologous to, he argues, to the feathers on birds. Birds are protected by their feathers. Mm -hmm. And so it's not good for the bird, a living bird, to have its feathers plucked out. Similarly, you, you let it grow. You let it grow. He also argues that trimming, he says nature tends more to give you extra than a deficiency. So in other words, you know, if you're, if, if you're a young person and you've got plenty of hair and then it's not that usually nature will, will give you more hair than you need. Over time, your hair will continue to grow. But he says it's easier to trim back excess than it is to, to get the equivalent of implants, right? If you're going bald and you need hair, that, that's harder to do, right? And back in the ancient world, they didn't, they didn't do that. If you were balding, you were balding. But they wouldn't shave it all off. And for him, the, the, it is coded to, to gender roles, right? I mean, Epictetus talks about this too. I mean, you can, you can, Epictetus says, you know, the beard is a calling card. From a distance, you can see whether the person approaching is a man or a woman. 
right? Because from the facial hair, right? You can distinguish between men and boys and men and women and men and girls. And women have higher voices generally than men do. Um, so for them, given their providential conception of nature, these sorts of, uh, what, phenotypical uh, features, mm -hmm. they have meaning. They're significant. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say is one of the most important philosophical insights or upshots from Musonius's thought on beards? On beards? <laughs> or on beards, on hair, or just in general? Yeah. Like, what, what, like, what do you take away from it? Uh well, I mean, all of the stuff about the, the physiology and providence is very interesting, but I find the, the most interesting text to actually not be in Musonius, so I'm cheating a little bit, but to be in Epictetus, because there's this wonderful passage in the discourses where he says, you know, if somebody's trying to boss you around and they're trying to coerce you, they might look at your beard and for... Roman Stoic philosophers, as for Greek philosophers, the beard, not just for men, but is specifically the badge of a philosopher. Uh -huh. So it's not only in accordance with your male nature to keep your beard, but if your chosen professor, profession is to be a philosopher, you really need to have a beard. Why is that? Because of this tradition, going back to Socrates, looking like Socrates, right? And maybe these other kind of in accordance with nature arguments that this is really what's natural for men and philosophers can recognize what living in agreement with nature means for men. And that means leaving the beard alone, let it grow, comb it out, keep it in decent shape, but let it grow. And so the, the passage in the discourses, I'm sure you know it, is where somebody says, hey, you know, there you are, Epictetus, with your beard. And if somebody says, shave it off, or I'll behead you. Cut your beard off, or I'll behead you. Epictetus responses, he responds and says, if it'll, if it'll do you any good, go ahead and cut my head off. And when I when I used to teach this to my undergraduates at Creighton, they were like, What's this hang up with beards? <laughs> Who cares about a beard? And then they would think about it and think, well, wait a second. You don't need a beard to philosophize, and that's true. You certainly don't. You can be a hell of a philosopher and qu quite clean shaven, right? As you are, my friend, right? Right? So why would the hair on your chin make you a good philosopher or a bad philosopher? It doesn't. It doesn't, right? But in this passage from Epictetus, what he's saying is, look, the subtext is, I'm announcing that I'm a philosopher. This is my badge. I don't have a shield. I don't have a card that says I'm a philosopher. I don't have a diploma that says I'm a philosopher, but I let this grow. And that makes me following into tradition, going back to Socrates, where men let this grow that are philosophers. And so if the guy is threatening to behead him, if he doesn't shave off his beard, the fancy word here is, I love this word, pogonotomy. Pogonotomy from the Greek, cutting off of the beard, right? Or depilation, shaving. Epictetus says, in the subtext is he's saying, you can't coerce me into giving up my calling card as a philosopher. Because you're telling me, deny in public that you're a philosopher by shaving your beard. 
-hmm. Strip it off. Don't be who you are. Don't adhere to the scruples of your chosen profession as a philosopher. Give up this sign, this calling card that you are a philosopher that you announce to everyone without speaking a word. You come into the room, they see you have a, has a, have a long beard. It's like, hey, this dude could be a philosopher. He's got a beard. The guy who's coercing him is trying to force him to strip that off. Deny that you're a philosopher by getting rid of this badge. He says, to heck with that. You want to behead me? If that's up to you, if it pleases you, go ahead and try. If it'll do you any good. So basically, I love this, this passage from Epictetus. He's saying, you can't coerce me, dude. You can't make me get a face tattoo either. You, you can't force me to shave my eyebrows off. You can't force me to dress in a bizarre way or to strip naked, right? Unless you have physical superiority, in which case you can do all of those things to me, right? You can pin him down and you can strip his clothes off and paint him purple and green and shave off his eyebrows and everything else. But then Epictetus has nothing to be ashamed of because he's being physically overpowered, but not coerced. You're only coerced when you give in to what somebody else wants you to do. Right, right. Excellent. That's a, that's a great passage. Well, thanks again for coming on. This has been a, a lot of fun. Thank you, Caleb. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more Stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.